Welcome to the BC Podcast, featuring a weekly message from Believer's Church in Warren, Ohio. For more information, visit www.believers.cc. Tipping point is all about this. You and I are one decision away from changing our life in any area of our life, from tipping the scales to the positive. And that's what this series is all about. Uh, And we're dealing with just different areas of our life and how we can have tipping point moments in those areas. So today, I titled this lesson, The Greatness Decision. And don't don't all of us want to end up being great, right? This is The Greatness Decision. And for some of you, I'm going to redefine the definition of greatness. So I thought we'd begin by talking about someone that in all of our eyes is really great. And his name is Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps is the greatest Olympian, not just the greatest American Olympian, the greatest Olympian of all times. He has 28 Olympic medals, 23 gold medals, and nobody, nobody has ever, ever accomplished what Michael has accomplished. What I want to do right now is I want to ask this question, uh, what made Michael Phelps great? Because we know he's great. And you see six people listed up here. The first group is uh, his two sisters. And do you know when Michael was a young boy, he was so afraid of the water, if his face became wet, he would cry. And his sisters worked him in to where he could become used to the water. And then his mom, I mean, moms are going to help us in all kinds of areas. But Michael had ADHD at the highest level. And uh, even with medication, he could, he could not focus. And so his mom worked with him for years to help him learn how to focus. And can we all agree? He knows how to focus now. So mom, mom helped make him great. And then there's the coach. This is his first coach. And uh, Michael stunk when he went out for a swimming team. He was so bad, he couldn't win anything. But a coach saw potential in him. And this coach took him under his wing and began to train him. Then there's his brother-in-law. You know, after Michael won gold in the um, London Olympics, he he went on a binging frenzy, you know, uh, drinking, smoking hooch. He had DUIs. I mean, he decided he was never going to swim again. And his brother-in-law left his job and literally convinced him to go through rehab. And his brother-in-law walked him through rehab. Think about that. That's absolutely Amazing. So then he decided, I'm going to go to the Rio Olympics, and he needed the training partner. And there was this guy that was training for the Olympics, and this guy had a chance if Michael didn't, if Michael didn't go. But this guy gave up everything, and he helped train Michael, and he never went to the Olympics. Hopefully, he'll go to the next one, but Michael went back. And when I think about what made him great, it's not just him. It's all these people in this life. And that's what we're going to do today, redefine greatness, because I believe every one of them is every bit as great as he is. But we don't understand that sometimes. And I want to help you understand it, because the Bible teaches that to us very clearly. So here's here's my big idea. Here's what I want you to walk out understanding more clearly than ever. It goes like this. Greatness seldom looks like greatness. But I want to say something to you. Right now, They're doing it in Borman. They're doing it at TCI. Right now, I am standing in the midst of greatness. There are great people all around me. But you have to understand what, in God's eyes, greatness means, because it's amazing. If I were to ask you, what is it that makes Jesus great, what would you say? 
Some of you would say he was this incredible teacher, and he was. He was a great teacher. That's not why he's considered great. Others would say, well, he raised the dead, he cleansed the leopard, he gave sight to the blind. Can we all agree those are great things? I'm not doing any of those things right now, right? That's really great, but that's not what made him great. If he would have came to the earth and left, and that's all he did, he would not be great. He would not be considered great. But you know what made him great? This picture says it all, right? That's what made Jesus great dying on a cross. And if he would have done everything else and never done that, he would not have been great. And I love what the Bible says concerning this event. Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 6. You, this is God the Father, were not satisfied with the animal sacrifices slain and burnt before you as offerings for sin. Verse 7, then I, Jesus, God the Son, said, see, I have come to do your will, to lay down my life, just as the Scripture said that I would. You know, God wrote in a book what Jesus was supposed to do. God wrote in a book what you were created to do. It's not the Bible. His was the Bible. He got the big, big book, but we still get a book. There's a book in heaven where God wrote what he created you to do. And Jesus had to come to a place in his life where he accepted this. You know, he, he always existed. He's, he, the Bible says he created the universe. I mean, he's incredible. He took on a human body. And while in that human body, he had to fight to do what God created him, not created, but sent him. He created us, sent Jesus, what he sent him to do. And he had this moment. It was right after the Last Supper, and he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's at the Mount of Olives. It's this incredible place. I've had the pleasure of being there twice. And right at the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where they had all the olive presses, and they would press that fresh oil. And he went there to pray, he prayed the same prayer three times. And it's what I call the tipping point moment in Jesus' life. And we all have to have our Garden of Gethsemane moments. Personally, I have to have them yearly, and you're going to understand why. I think all of us do. But let's look at his tipping point moment. It goes like this, Luke 22, 41, 42. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, Yet not my will, but your will be done. And, you know, we think of blind obedience here. This is not a, just this is obedience. This is Jesus yielding to why he came to planet Earth. And you and I are going to have to have the same tipping point moments where we just yield and say we want to do what we came here to do. Now think about it. His cup was dying at the cross. And he's just saying, Lord, if there's another way to do this, Father, let's do it that way. And you know what? He knew. He, he volunteered to come. He always existed. But now he's in a human body, and our bodies always fight us. And his body's saying, I don't want to die on a cross. His body's screaming, I don't want to give it up. I don't want God to turn his back on me. I don't want to do that. And yet he decided at this moment, I'm going to yield and do what God's created me to do. We all have tipping point moments in our life. So I think all of us understand, don't we all realize uh, we weren't born to die on a cross, and I'm so excited about that because I'd probably wimp out. And so I'm glad that's not the case. But you were born to do something. And there's this incredible section of Scripture. I want to read it to you. One of my favorite spots in the Bible, it's Jeremiah, and it reads like this, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is what God said. So God's literally speaking to Jeremiah. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. Before you saw the light of day, 
I had holy plans for you. A prophet to the nations. That's what I had in mind. Now we're going to go back to the first part of this verse 5. But you know what God wrote in the book concerning him? He said, you're going to be a prophet. And he wrote it before he was born. Now, being a prophet in the Old Testament was just about as bad as dying on a cross because God would send you to speak to disobedient kings and you'd have to say to them, hey, God wants you to stop doing this and stop living this way. And the kings would have them stoned and they would have them excommunicated. It was tough. But this is true of every one of us. We're just not all called to be prophets, but we're all called and designed by God to do something. So can we look at the first part of verse 5? Talk about significance. If you're sitting here and you don't feel significant, Man, it's going to change today. It's going to change, guys. TCI is going to change today. Listen to verse 4. This is what God said, verse 5. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. You know, mom and dad just create the body. You know what God does? He puts the spirit and soul inside every person. So do not ever accept the lie that you weren't wanted, that you're no good because of the family you came from or the situation you came out of. I don't care who you are, God made the real you and put it inside. And God loves to take the worst circumstances and put the greatest callings inside those circumstances. That's just how God is. He loves to prove everything in this world wrong. And listen to this. It goes on to say, before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. I like to say it this way, before the doctor's slapped your dupa, and you screamed before you ever saw the light of day, before you took your first breath. God wrote down in a book what he wanted you to do. As a matter of fact, Psalm 139, we're not going to read it, but you should read it this week, right around verse 16. Do you know what it says? Before you were born, God wrote in a book. It's not the Bible, so you're not going to read it here, but he wrote in a book everything he created you to do. So I always want to make sure I don't confuse people when I talk about this, so let me break this down for you just for a moment, okay? Whatever you're doing for your career, whatever you're doing in life, uh, your profession, company you're working for, I just want you to know in most cases, 99% of the time, um, that's up to you. God didn't write in a book, you have to be this, and this is your profession. We're not talking about that part of your life. Uh, God lets you choose and do whatever you want to do, pursue those kind of things. You know, unless he calls you in the ministry like me, because I had to say no to a business opportunity. But outside of being called a full-time ministry, whatever you do, God's, God's going to help you. It's significant, but it's not like, don't sit there thinking, oh, maybe I took the wrong direction in life. No, whatever you do, God's going to help you. He's going to bless you. God wants you to be on mission. He wants you to shine your Christian light wherever you are. He wants to open doors for you to help you. But you know what he wrote in the book? What he created you to do in his kingdom. And that's what makes us great, just like Jesus. We become great when we just say, God, I want to just do what you created me to do. And that's why I say I'm standing in the midst of greatness because, man, there are some people here that, you know, you may not think they look great because greatness seldom looks like greatness. But I'm telling you, if they're doing what God wrote in the book, they're every bit as great as the greatest preacher that ever lived. They're every bit as great as anybody in the Bible, any character. You name the names, the great names, Moses, whoever they are. If you're doing what God created you to do, you're great. 
And so God's given us an ability to use our gifts. And 95% of the time, you're going to do it in your local church. 5% of the time, you'll do it with what I call parachurch organizations. You know, you'll do it with uh, soup kitchens or ministries of some sort. But most of you are going to use your gifts in church. And in order to use our gift in church, we have to have these tipping point moments because it's hard. It, it takes our precious time, right? And that, that's not easy. So uh, there's, there's this t- time where we just say, God, all right, I'm going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to give some of my time to do and help you. So I thought we'd read a section of scripture and I just show you some of the different greatness gifts that are out there. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says this, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Every one of you, whatever he wrote in a book, he gave you a gift to do it. I mean, it's inside you to do whatever he wrote in that book and to do it really well. So let me tell you a little story about myself. I was, uh, I've always longed to be a musician and a singer. I just, since the time I was little. In 1964, when I was six years old, the Beatles, they came to America for the first time. And they did not know what kind of reception they were going to receive. But there were 4,000 screaming young women at the airport to greet them at the airport. I remember watching them at six years old on the Ed Sullivan Show. And for those of you that are younger, I mean, this is before the internet, before YouTube. And this was the biggest venue in the world. If you had this venue, everyone in America was going to figure out and find out who you were. And they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I remember watching my brothers and I, not not I, I was just, you know, I, I, I got to stand and they formed a Beatles band. We have some video of it. I wish I would have got it for you guys to watch. But um, all my brothers are incredible musicians, just exceptional musicians. And, uh, and I'm the only one that could never play anything. So I just stood there and I didn't have anything to do. And I always wanted to do something. So about 10 years ago, I thought, I'm going to make my dream come true. And I took piano lessons for two years. And after two years, I couldn't get through the beginner's number one first book. Kids get through it in a couple months. And I, I, I realized then I, I can't do that. That's why God doesn't have me up here singing or playing. I've never had to decide between two things, right? I can't do that well. But every one of you have something you can do really, really well. So in this text, he talks about, I like to call it the most common body gifts. And uh, I'm going to just go through a couple of them because there are people all over this church in Boardman here, TCI, we have people volunteering there. Um, and and these, were, these are what makes us great. God wrote in a book that he wanted you to do some of these things. He put gifts inside you. The first one listed is serving. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, and it literally means just to serve. And here's the wisdom of God. God didn't be, become uh, specific here because he knew culture would change, technology would change. So he didn't make a list. He just said there are certain people in my church that I put this desire inside of them to serve. And I tell you, we have servers all over doing all kinds of things, and they are the happiest people I've ever seen. Why? They have reached greatness because greatness seldom looks like greatness to the outside, but doing what God created you to do is great. Here's another one. It's called teaching. And I'm standing up here as a pastor, so there's fivefold ministry gift, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. So I stand in the pastor's gift. But this is not referring to, to, to guys like me. 
This is referring to people in the body that God's called to teach. So they might teach in children's ministry, they might teach in student ministry, or they may teach connect groups and teach in connect groups. And this is an awesome gift, and it's an amazing gift. And some of you are called to teach, and I want to just encourage you, man, find a platform and begin to use that gift because that's what greatness is because God created you to do that. Here's another one, encouraging. Some translations say exhorting. So this could be someone that likes to counsel people and not necessarily have to have a degree. This also would be our band, our, our singers, our musicians. And man, they're up here exhorting us, encouraging us, and they do a great job. We're so thankful for them. But can I make a statement? We need more musicians on all our campuses. We need more singers, lead and harmony singers on all of our campuses. And since I can't sing and I want to, if God's gifted you, why not use your gift, man? Why not, why, not, why not use your gift in the kingdom of God? Because that will be greatness for you. And then we have, the next one is leading. And some of you are called to be leaders, and that's an incredibly awesome gift. Um, you could lead a connect group. So you can lead a connect group and never teach, right? You could lead something you're passionate about, or you could lead and play video teachings in your group, whatever. And I'm telling you, we'd love to triple the amount of connect groups we have, and we have leaders in here. You would do an incredible job. And then we have other places in the church where we're always looking for someone to lead. And then there's comforting. This is also called mercy. And you know who you are if you have this gift. Uh, you love doing nursing home visitation, hospital visitation, uh, working in soup kitchens, helping the people that are down and out. You know who you are, and you're called of God to do that, and that's where you're going to feel significant. Then there's one more I listed. It's called giving or the giver, and all of us are called to be generous and help God do what he's doing through our local church by giving, but there are certain people they are called to be givers, and they're very calling is to give. And so that means they have to have a gift to make. So their business, wherever they make their money, uh, that's actually a very holy place because that's where they make their money. And so God, when somebody realizes I'm called to be a giver and they say, God, I want to walk in that gift, God will bless them crazily and he will grow their business because he's literally called them to do that. But you know what I've learned? Whatever gift we have, if we give it to God and we use it, God will grow that gift like crazy. He only grows it when we use it. And so I've noticed that doing what God's called me to do. But you know what else I do, guys? I volunteer. I volunteer for a ministry. And I have to be honest with you. Um, every year, you can ask Gina, I have Garden of Gethsemane moments. Because to volunteer, what does it take? Time. Experts tell us the average person can give four to six hours a week. That's the average person. And so we're always fighting with our schedule, right? That's always pulling on us and fighting us. So there are times every year where I have to pray and say, God, am I going to, I don't want to do this. It takes too much time. I like it, but it takes too much. And I have to have that yielding moment where I say, all right, God. Now, of course, if you're retired, you have more time, right? Uh, if you, an empty nester, Gina and I are now empty nesters. Whoa, so fun. And uh, you have more time when you're an empty nester, right? The house stays clean longer. It's just really incredible. Now, if you're raising young kids, your time's more limited. But you know what? You can do things, you can do things for God right during service. And so you don't even have to come out extra. You can do it right during service. So uh, I know there's going to be a bunch of you having these Garden of Gethsemane moments, and you can just go to our lobbies, get on the iPad, you can fill out an application, and, and you can let us know, and then we'll get back to you. 
but I'm not finished yet. Can I talk to you guys about one of the greatest um, tipping point moments in the Bible? It has to do with a man named Jonathan. Jonathan's dad was King Saul, first king of Israel. Jonathan was next in line to be king, and so he was a prince. He grew up in the palace, and he had this beautiful life ahead of him, but then God decided to send Samuel the prophet to David the shepherd boy, and Samuel poured oil on his head, which is a ceremony that they do, and he said, you will be the next king of Israel, and Jonathan heard about it. Jonathan could have gone a lot of directions there, right? But you know what he did? I know he had to have a Garden of Gethsemane moment. And he had to probably have this prayer with God. You know, God, I could live in the palace. I could have the best food. I, can, I could have the choice of wives. I, I could live this plush life. And God, why are you giving this to David? I'm next in line. But there was a point there where he said, not my will, your will be done. It's an amazing story. And then he did this publicly. Take a look at what this guy did publicly. It's in 1 Samuel 18.4, and it says this, guys. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. These are all kingly items. The robes, the, the, the king's robe, the prince's robe. And he in public went and he gave it to David and said, I submit to you being the next king. Now, when his dad heard about it, his dad used some cuss words. If you read the right translation, you actually have them in there. I'm not even going to read it to you. His dad was so mad. His dad said, you shamed your mother. You shamed me. And then his dad said, you need to go kill David, because if you don't kill David, he'll be the king. And Jonathan said, Dad, I'm going to help him be the king. I'm going to be his general. And his dad was so mad. That's why uh, Saul kept trying to kill David. It was over this reason. And yet Jonathan had this tipping point moment, and he just said, you know what? I just want to be what you created me to be. So I found two things that I fight with all the time when it comes to the tipping point to greatness, saying, God, I just want to do what you created me to do. And the first one is this thing called ego. And all of us deal with ego, right? It's this pride. We all deal with it. So I found this test. It's on BuzzFeed.com. <clears throat> It's called the egotistical test. If you go to buzzfeed.com, don't do it now, guys, and you just put an egotistical test, you, you can take the test. It's 35 questions. I had eight out of 35, and they said, you are mildly egotistical. And Gina said, I told you so. And uh, that's what they said. And I thought, well, we, we all have some, right? So I took 15 of the 35 questions. They're not in a row, but I thought you'd enjoy it. In your mind, take this test with me right now, just with 15 of the questions. And the first one is this, have you Googled yourself? The second one is, have you struggled to take criticism? Number three is, have you bragged about your exam results on social media? Number four is, have you bragged about getting a job on social media? Number five is, have you carried on an argument even though you knew you were wrong? I still do that. I do it with Gina all the time. And uh, so that's one I marked off. Number six is, have you looked at the uh, other people and said, I can do that easy. Uh, have you believed that it was you who did all the work in a group project? I remember in school, I always used to think that. Number eight, have you heard total strangers speaking in another language and presumed they were talking about you? And I told Gina, 
Every time I'm in an airport, every time I walk by people speak, I always think they're talking about me. And she said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm egotistical. That's what's wrong with me. All right. Yeah, it's all about me, right? So n- number nine is this. Uh, ha- have you took over a project because you knew you could do it better? Um, the next one is this. Uh, have you thought you were the smartest one in the room? And number 11 is, have you thought these people don't understand politics? I think that all the time. And then number 12, you liked your own selfie. I've never taken one, so I haven't had that opportunity. Number 13, have you believed yourself to be above manual labor? Number 14, have you believed that you were destined for stardom? I remember when I was in Bible school, I thought for sure when I came out of Bible school, I was going to be this nationally known minister, never pastor, just be so popular that I had the biggest ministry ever. And I remember when God was dealing with me to come back and pastor in my hometown, I'd say, no, God, I'm called to stardom. I think when we're young, we all think that, right? And here's the last one. Have you ever laughed at your own jokes? And I do that every day. So, so I'm guilty as can be. We all, we all have this thing called envy we have to deal with. And so in a church setting, man, uh, our pride could really get in the way. We can feel like, you know, I'm, uh, this is beneath me. I, 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 I'm better than this. And it could be so easy to have to deal with that. Here's the second thing. It's called envy. And man, I deal with this too. I want to help you understand it. See that this guy, this is Dr. Franz Wall. He's uh, the head of the European National Primate Center. And he's a psychologist and he, he works with monkeys and learns things about human beings, right, with, as he works with monkeys. So he had these monkeys doing jobs and he rewarded them by giving them slices of cucumbers. And they were so happy. They were just doing their work and everybody was happy, everybody getting along. And then he began giving just one monkey a juicy grape. And do you know, he said, here's what happened really quick. The other monkeys began to nurse a grudge, and they stopped working. And they're like, why does he get a grape, and why do I only get cucumbers? And they're fighting over a grape, man. And grapes aren't that great, but they're fighting over it, right? That's envy. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, right? I have never had one envious feeling about Michael Phelps. Probably because I can't swim, right? <laughs> Italian guys can't swim, right? So I can't swim. And I've never, I've never felt envious of him. Um, I, I admire him. I mean, I admire that guy. I'm just like, whoa, that's awesome. Uh, Rick Warren, some of you know who he is, uh, pastors in Southern California. He wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life. It is the second best-selling book next to the Bible in all the world. Think about that. That's pretty incredible, right? Um, he has one of the largest churches in America. They have 40,000 on a weekend in attendance. He has 50,000 every week in his connect groups. He's only one of two churches I'm aware of that has more people in their connect groups than they do even in their church. The average church has about 25, 30% in their connect group. You know, I have never envied that man ever. I admire him. I'm like, whoa, he's awesome. But you know who I have struggled envying? The pastor friends I graduated from Bible school that do better than I do. I start to feel envy then, right? It's the people we rub shoulders with that we begin to deal with this thing called envy, and it will take us right out of our greatness that God's called us to do. We just have to understand, man, we all have a different track. It's just all about walking the track. So take, take a look at this guy. This is Oscar Wilde. He died in the year 1900. That's why his suit's out of style. But uh, this is for Pastor Graham and Borbin. He was an, uh, an Irish writer, incredible writer. And uh, he wrote this little fictional about uh, the devil crossing the Libyan desert. 
And here's, here's how it reads. He came upon a spot where a small number of demons were tormenting a holy hermit. The sainted man easily shook off their evil suggestions. The devil watched as his lieutenants fell to sway the hermit, and then he stepped forward to give them a lesson. What you do is too crude, he said. Permit me for one moment. He then whispered in the holy man's ear, your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. Suddenly a look of malignant envy clouded the once serene face of the hermit. Then the devil turned to his hymns and said, that is the sort of thing which I would recommend. And sometimes, you know, the enemy can't get us to do these terrible things, but he can get us in the area of envy. So think about it. Greatness seldom looks like greatness. And sometimes we look around us and our ego tells us, man, I'm above this. Or we might envy because, you know, someone was promoted and we won't, we weren't. And then we have to deal with all this time issue. And I just want to encourage you to become great. And some of you are wondering, well, how, how do I figure out what's written in the book? All you do is start. Just start. Do something. God will guide you. It's like a guided missile, right? If that missile is launched, it can be guided. If it sits on, on the ground, you can't guide it. God will guide you. But just make a decision. Lord, I want to just begin to help in any way that I can and watch what God does. So I'm in the midst of greatness. There's some other ones here. You're about ready to connect to greatness. Can we close our eyes, bow our heads? Can we pray right now? Lord, I did my best to bring out this part of the Bible. I thank you for the incredible people here at Believers. And Lord, I thank you for all the people that are sitting here. I hope no one's condemned, Lord. You've called them to greatness too. And, and I know they have different situations, but Lord, right now we just want to have a Garden of Gethsemane moment. And Lord, we just want to say, not our will, but your will be done. And we thank you for taking us to a place where we're fulfilling what you created us to do. And Lord, that's our heart's prayer, man. Open up our heart, our eye, eyes, help us have a desire to do what we were created to do. And Lord, we thank you that it's not mystical. We thank you that it's as simple as saying yes. And Lord, we thank you that that's what brings us joy, fulfillment, and contentment. That's, Lord God, which what brings us significance. So on all our campuses, stay in an attitude of prayer. Guys at TCI, stay in an attitude of prayer because God's created you to do something for his kingdom right where you're at, and that's going to make you incredibly great. So heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Maybe someone that's listening, you're not sure of your forever. You're not sure if you were to die, if you'd go to heaven or hell. Maybe you walked in here not sure if there is a heaven or hell, Boardman, TCI. You're just not sure. Listen, I'm not asking you to join a church or a religion. I'm not asking you if you grew up in church, if you were water baptized as a baby or adult, here's what I'm asking. Can you remember a moment in your life when you connected with Jesus and you said, I believe you're the Savior and I make a decision today to accept you? That's when we become children of God. And it's the most amazing thing in the world. And God says you can't work for it. We become the children of God by simply believing in Christ Jesus. So heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're in one of our venues and you say, man, that's me. I'm ready to accept Jesus. Would you pray with me right now? Everyone else in every venue, can we help them pray? Just say this after me. Say, Lord God, I realize I need a Savior. And this day, I give my heart to Jesus. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. You died for my sins. And this day, I give you my heart and make a decision 
to follow you. Amen. Now, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know, if you prayed that prayer, you probably didn't feel anything. Every now and then people do, but most times you don't feel a thing. But you know what? Every sin you ever committed was washed away. God's placed the gift of eternal life inside you. You become one of God's kids. That's amazing. You know what else is happening right now? The Bible says that God himself and all of heaven are celebrating. Thank you for listening to the BC Podcast. Follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated, inspired, and encouraged.